Hey, great to see each of you. Welcome if you're part of the online campus. One of the first mission trips I ever went on was to a pretty Spartan place in the world. Didn't have electricity most of the time. It rained most of the time. And um, the food was pretty limited. I had a cup of tea in the morning without sugar and water the rest of the day. Pretty much every meal was rice, a soup-type mixture with some carrots, a couple other vegetables in them. I didn't know what they were. I was hoping they were vegetables. <laughs> and on a good day there'd be pieces of chicken. But that wasn't Costco chicken that was big and fluffy. It was like skinny chicken. And you're gnawing on the bone trying to get some meat off of it. And what kind of made my heart sad is that they give the bones to the children in the missions camp where I was and the children would gnaw on the bones to get the nourishment from the marrow. And um, I really missed milk. I love milk, but I really miss milk. And I missed regular type food. And I dropped 10 pounds in seven days. Kind of makes me think I should have gone for two weeks. <laughs> right? But... Um, at the end of the missions trip, we tagged on a safari. And it took us about 10 hours to get to this safari, but it was well worth it because when we walked into the hotel, we were greeted by hosts that had fresh squeezed orange juice. And that night for dinner, I walked into a buffet area and there was all kinds of meat. There's a carving station and all kinds of vegetables, and there was desserts. And I thought, wow. It was like a Dorothy, you know, in the Wizard of Oz moment. You went from black and white to color, right? I craved milk, and I craved a good Coke and pizza and hoagies, and all those things we're not supposed to eat a lot of. Well, I was just, there was something inside of me that just longed. And when I went to the buffet that night, I was like, I'm so glad I'm on the safari. That's the closest I've ever gotten to hungering and thirsting for food. Because here in America, you pretty much get whatever you want, right? And you don't really have to think about. If you're hungry, you're kind of like a false hungry because you're, you're hungry because it's been five hours since you've eaten something and your body's telling you, hey, it's been five hours since you've eaten something. Let's go get something to eat. But most of us in America really haven't experienced a true sense of hunger going for days without food or limited food. But I, I had those cravings. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, those who crave righteousness. 
the deepest part of us is spiritual. It's not emotional, it's spiritual. Because God has created in us, St. Augustine said this, more or less a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he's saying is, blessed are those who crave righteousness, for they will be filled. So we need to ask ourselves a question this morning, a couple questions. The first is, what is righteousness? Well, there are three dimensions to righteousness. There is a legal, a moral, and a social righteousness. Let's look first at what a legal righteousness is. It's what you and I would typically think in terms of our relationship with God. It's the great act of justification by faith. God does two great works in your life, justification and sanctification. If you had a coin, one side would be justification, the other side would be sanctification. So justification is a legal term because it came out of the legal court system, and it means this. It's the idea in ancient days when you were justified, the judge took a gavel and hit the table and said, I'm declaring you not guilty. Now, you may have been guilty, but the judge declared you not guilty, so you were free from the penalty of whatever that sin that you had committed dealt with. So Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, paid for our sins. His resurrection broke the power of sin in our lives. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, now we are justified by God. It's a legal term. He declares us not guilty. Now, each one of us knows we are guilty. That's the thing, right? We all know that we're aware of sin, but when we give our lives to Christ, he puts down the gavel and says, I'm declaring you not guilty. You're free from the penalty of sin. That's legal righteousness. It's when we begin a relationship with the Lord. Moral righteousness has to do with the second great act of God's grace in your life and in my life. It's called sanctification. So justification is what God does for us. Sanctification is what God does in us. It's real change. I'm making a guess here that some of you grew up swearing. But when you gave your life to Christ, one day a thought came into your mind, a sense of conviction, a sense of, oh, I shouldn't be doing that anymore. And so you began to work on the things that came out of your mouth. That's God's sanctifying process in you. It's real tangible change. Some of you used to have a smoking problem, but by God's grace, God has helped you to overcome that. So now you don't smoke anymore. Some of you had a certain kind of addiction and God has enabled you to overcome that addiction. Some of you had a gossiping problem. You just talk behind somebody's back all the time. You're sharing prayer requests. But what was really going on is you had a juicy bit of information about somebody else and you just couldn't wait to share it. But one day the Holy Spirit kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, one day you read a scripture and you realize God says, oh, you shouldn't be doing certain things. And then you read another scripture that says, oh, these are things I should be doing. And you really made an effort to stop doing some things and start doing some other things. That's called sanctification and it's called moral righteousness or another term for that is simply holiness. Holiness 
is a desire to live differently than what you used to live before. And Jesus says, blessed are those who crave holiness, living different, for they will be filled. But there's a third righteousness, and that is called social righteousness. God has placed inside of his people, you and me, Christians, at least in seed form, a desire to grieve when we see the wrongs of culture. And there's something inside of us that longs to right the wrongs in culture. Now I'm gonna throw out a term that has, take, that has political connotations and some of you may wanna check out, but hang in there. Today it's called social justice. I don't know what you think about that term social justice. Some of you have already been, oh, liberals talk about that, social justice. No, the Bible talked about it for centuries before liberals ever got there. Listen to these two scripture passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. Do not deprive the foreigner. Do not deprive the foreigner. We are to take care of immigrants. Do not deprive the fatherless of justice. In other words, Christians, God's people, ought to lean into children, particularly who are vulnerable in our culture, and we ought to have a heart for them or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. You know, in the Old Testament, it was wrong to take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. What does that mean? It means this. When an old widow lady had, was going through some real trouble, and the only thing she had was her cloak, and she needed to get something, food or whatever, is that you could give something as a pledge that you would eventually get it back if they gave you what you wanted, right? And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Widows are so fragile, you don't even take her cloak as a pledge. You just give her what she needs. That's called social justice. Leviticus chapter 25, 35 through 37. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves, help them as you would a foreigner. Help a fellow American if they turn poor just as you would an immigrant. so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. Now, you may agree or disagree with whatever the political environment is. All I'm trying to say is remove politics from it and God has placed inside of you and me a desire for a social righteousness. God gives you a heart for your community and my community. And when we see things that are wrong in our community, there's something inside of us that ought to rise up and say, we ought to do something in our community about that. Hungering and thirsting for legal, moral, and social righteousness. Now here's a question. What keeps us from having a robust, hunger and a thirst for God 
for our personal holiness and for social justice. Three things, at least three. The first is cotton candy. Every year, we rent a cabin at Knoebel's Amusement Park up in central Pennsylvania. And our daughters and their families come in and we just spend the week there riding the Phoenix roller coaster. Did you know that Knoebel's is always listed as the number one best food for amusement parks in the country? And that's the real reason why we go there. <laughs> and a constant source of temptation for Holly and I is we walk by the funnel cake stand and the cotton candy stand. Now, I lean more toward the funnel cake. She leans more toward the cotton candy. And, you know, the problem, of course, is that if you're within 20 feet of the cotton candy stand, you smell it. And it's warm, and you see them spinning it, and you can get blue or you can get pink. You know what I mean? And, and you know, because it's an amusement park, they're not giving you, like, this little cone thing. They're giving you the big cone, right? And so for, like, $5, you can get this massive, right, cotton candy thing. And, of course, the, the, the challenge with cotton candy is that you can take it. It's like, you know, it's, it's like donuts, right? Yum, yum donuts. You can just, like, put five of them in your mouth, and they just melt all at one time. You know what I mean? I didn't eat five donuts, right? And so cotton candy, by the time you're done with that cotton candy, you feel full. But 20 minutes later, your sugar's dropped, and now you're hungry all over again. A lot of people struggle with cotton candy faith. Let me give you a couple examples. Reading only the Bible verses that speak to you. We've all done this, right? You ever feeling depressed or a little discouraged? You do a Google search, you know, Bible verses to inspire me. And you get a list of like 15 or 20 Bible verses. So you end up spending the whole week just reading those Bible verses because you, you, know, you need to feel uplifted. Let me tell you something that happened to me many years ago, and it was a transitional time for me. And, and, and I, think, I think what God was trying to do is God was trying to move me from a, a level of immaturity to a greater level of maturity in Christ. So we're all on that journey, right? And that journey's not going to stop until we go home to be with Jesus. But, but it was a breakthrough in my own life when I realized that I was trying to tell God what I needed rather than God telling me what I needed. You get that? You hear the flip? How many of us go to the scripture looking for things because we're telling God what we need? I just feel a little down today, God. Give me a pick-me-up. Or I, I need some real wisdom in this area, God. And, and so we look at all the Bible verses that we think we need. You know what the breakthrough was in my life? When God challenged me to read through the Bible in a year. And for 22 years, I did. Every year, I would read through the Bible. And here's what I discovered. I'd start in January. God knew on July 17th what I needed to hear that day in Leviticus. What? I would have never spent time in Leviticus. Who wants to be there? Cotton candy faith tells God what we need. Real faith, God tells you what you need. Because sometimes God says to you, it's not a cotton candy day. It's a Brussels sprouts. Oh, Lord, help us. 
It's a lima bean day. You know what I'm saying? I think lima beans should have been wiped away in the flood. Right? Okay. Cotton candy faith is when most of our prayers are about us. You know you're making spiritual progress when most of your prayers are not actually about us, but some of them are, right? It's okay to pray selfish prayers. Most of the Psalms are David's selfish prayers. But you know you're making a transition into a more robust faith when you begin to see around you the needs of other people. There's a second reason that keeps us, I think, from a robust hunger and thirsting. So the first is basically filling up on junk food spiritually so that we actually don't have a taste for real food. The second is we substitute the things of God for God. This is a little bit more subtle, but hang with me. Some people substitute church for God. We say things like, well, I haven't missed church in 30 years. Hey, um, I'm thrilled you haven't missed church in 30 years. But just because you've been in church in 30 years doesn't mean you've experienced God in church those 30 years. Some people love worship music more than the Jesus that the worship music sings about. Some people love Bible prophecy more than Jesus. Some people, okay, this is really subtle, some people love an experience with God more than God. I'm going to have to unpack that. This was Elijah's problem. Remember when Elijah ran from King Ahab and Jezebel and he's like hiding in some cave somewhere and an earthquake comes and he comes out of the cave thinking God was in the earthquake. There's a mighty wind. He thinks God's in the mighty wind and that God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the mighty wind. And he's like, hey, what's up with that? And then God comes in a still small voice. Here's what I've discovered. I had to wean myself from longing for an experience with God so I could experience God. Some of you want to experience maybe a great emotional experience. And then you say to yourself, oh, this great emotion. I mean, I came to church, they sang all the songs and, and I, just, I just feel so good because I, I felt God's presence in a very specific way. Hey, I'm all happy for that. I love it when that happens to me. But sometimes we can get hooked on a particular kind of experience rather than what God wants us to experience. Sometimes God comes to us in a way that we don't expect and we may want to push away from that because we want him to talk to us this way. So we substitute the things of God for God. I think there's a third reason why we struggle with having a robust hunger and thirsting for God and righteousness, and that is it's just really hard work. How many of you know it's really hard work to be a Christian? I mean, if you really lean into the Christian life, it's just super hard work. It's a lot harder than what we thought it was going to be. Being a follower of Jesus isn't easy. Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 26 and 27, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, 
mother, spouse, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, cannot be my disciple. Woo! Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me cannot be my disciple. So why is the Christian life so hard? Because it raises all kinds of questions. I bet most Christians really struggle with this. They say, am I doing this right? Am I doing the Christian life right? Here's a bunch of questions. What am I supposed to feel? What does God really expect from me? Will God still love me when I continually fail? How can I forgive people who have hurt me so deeply? How come I worry instead of having more faith? What is faith anyway? How do I change my thinking? How do I change longstanding habits? How come I just can't change? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have been struggling with the same thing you've been struggling with for 20 years? Same thing. It's like Groundhog Day. You just keep repeating it. And you say to yourself, I must be doing something wrong. Maybe. Or maybe it's a stronghold in your life and you need to press in more. What I'm trying to say is, is that if you really want to lean into the Christian life, you're going to have to lean into, wow, this is way harder than what I thought it was going to be. Now, those of you who are married, do not raise your hands. How many of you know that marriage is a lot harder than what you thought it was going to be standing at an altar in front of a minister? You know what I'm saying? You couldn't wait to get married to your spouse. Five years later, you're like, man, oh man, is it hard. The best things in life are always hard. And they're worth it. I want to remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 39. There is nothing in all creation which is able to separate us from the love of Christ, Jesus our Lord. Press into hard. When you fail, get up again. When you don't have your devotions for a week and now you feel guilty about it, start over again. When you haven't prayed in a long time, start over again. There is a continual reset in the Christian life where we just have to keep on going. And though we'll fail, we'll fail forward. The only true failure is not getting up. Number three, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Here's a question. How do you increase your appetite for God? Recently, I read an article about increasing our hunger from, for God by a lady named Monica Bass from Ministry 127. I never heard of that ministry before, but I like what she had to say. So I'm just going to give you some of her thoughts. I thought they were insightful and I thought they were spot on. First of all, if you're going to increase your hunger and thirsting for God, what do you do? You start with where you are. Just start with where you are. Starting where you are means being honest. If you don't have a great hungering and thirsting for God, you just say, God, I'm so sorry. I know I should have a hungering and thirsting for you, but I don't. So whatever little hunger and thirsting I have, would you just kind of and blow it into a fire? Number two, starve competing habits and appetites. If I eat too much cotton candy, I'm not going to crave real food. 
Filling your mind with lesser things decreases your spiritual appetite. Learn to curb excessive time on Facebook. Netflix. Learn to give yourself margin from your busy schedule so you won't be so emotionally exhausted so that you can actually feel hunger for God. A third, examine your heart. If you're not hungering and thirsting for God at all, something is wrong. No hungering and thirsting for God ought to be this, this red flashing light that says something's wrong on the dashboard of your life. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. What? Paul is writing to Christians and he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless, in, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Jesus said this, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Hey, listen, I think I'm in. I got to get out jail card free because 20 years ago, I said a, a prayer in a service, right? No, wait a minute. That prayer in that service 20 years ago needs to be backed up by an intentionality to follow Jesus. Just like if you're married, you may have stood before a judge or stood before a minister and said, uh, said certain words, but you need to play out those words over the next 20, 30 years. Examine your heart. If you don't hunger and thirst for God, why? What's going on? Start with where you are. And then fourth, apply truth. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Knowing without doing is discouraging. If you know that you're supposed to do something, to be obedient in a certain area of your life that God has, has called you to do that. And if you're not doing it, you get discouraged. Faith begins to become active and alive when you actually do what you know you're supposed to do. Something wells up inside of you and you hunger and thirst for more of doing what you know you're supposed to do. And then lastly, make small adjustments. One of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible is Zechariah 4.10. How many of you ever read Zechariah, right? Zechariah 4.10, do not despise the day of small beginnings because the Lord loves it when the work begins. Make small adjustments. So I gotta tell you, the staff makes fun of me for this one illustration I gave several years ago. And like at least once a month, sitting in staff meeting, they'll, they'll make fun of me for this. So I just want to bring it back. <laughs> you know, the space program that NASA had for many years, you know, Challenger, right? Those ships were only on course 2% of the time. Only 2%. The other 98% of the time, there were boosters and thrusters just to kind of keep them on track. See, that's what the staff makes fun of me. Right? Whenever we're talking to staff meeting, somebody will just go, right? 
the power of small adjustments. Sometimes we get overwhelmed. If you're sitting there today thinking, oh, I'm not hungering and thirsting for God like I should, and you get overwhelmed and you don't know where to begin, start really small. Say to yourself, I'll spend five minutes a day in a scripture reading. Okay, should you be spending more than five minutes? Of course you should. But five minutes over 30 days is better than one hour every six months. Right? So just make small adjustments. The missions trip that I told you about at the beginning of the message, it ended and I came home on Thanksgiving Day. And when I walked in the door of our home, our extended family was there because they were waiting for me. And the entire home was filled with the smell of Thanksgiving. You know what I'm talking about. And they had saved a plate for me. And so I sat down after 10 days, after 10 pounds, and I loaded up. And at the end of the Thanksgiving meal, I was full. I was satisfied. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for a really dynamic relationship with God. Hunger and thirsting for holiness. I really do want to be different than this world around me. A hungering and thirsting for righteousness in our community. I really want to see our community turn toward God. And I want to see all the wrongs righted in our community. And I'm willing to do something about it. For you will be filled. What does it mean to be filled? It means that you will be filled with the fullness of God, that you will be satisfied, that your life will be filled, that whether you have what you think you want or need, you know, at any given time, God's presence will so fill your life that you'll just walk around out of abundance. That's what Jesus promises. It's an upside down world. It's a counterintuitive, a countercultural. That's what the Beatitudes are. The world says you have to have all these things to be filled, to be satisfied. Jesus says, no, you only need one. A hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So I want to leave you with this question. Are you hungering and thirsting for God? Just be honest with yourself. Zero to ten. Are you hungry and thirsty for God? Zero? I don't know. I'm just going through the motions. Okay, start where you are. Ten? Oh, no. I'm so I'm craving God's presence. Second question, what would be one thing you could do to increase your hungering and thirsting for God? Whatever that one thing is, work on it this week. In the next few moments, we're going to have an anointing time. What does that mean? We're going to have some folks that are going to be over here, over here, and over there. And you're going to be free to just get up and walk over to one of these three stations and just say to the person who has the anointing oil, um, I'm asking for prayer for this. Now, maybe 
you're struggling physically or emotionally and you just want somebody to pray over you and what they'll do is, if you want them to, they'll simply get, we have a, a vials of oil, we'll just take some oil and we'll just make the sign of the cross on your forehead and then someone will pray over you. Maybe you want to come for somebody else. You've got a child who's not prospering. You've got a spouse who's not prospering. And you, you just want to have them be lifted up in prayer. You come forward. Maybe that's your first step of hungry and thirsting for God is that you need to get up and you just walk up to somebody and say, I really am not hungry and thirsting for God like I know I should be. Would you just pray a prayer over me? Asking God to reveal to me how I can increase my spiritual hunger. Would you stand please? I'm gonna pray a blessing over each of us and then the worship team is gonna come and as they have a closing song, if you wanna come up to one of these three stations, in fact, if, if you're the one who's anointing, just come up right now and we just wanna give that opportunity for healing and restoration. The book of James says, if anyone is sick among you, he should call the elders of the church together and that they will anoint you with oil and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. We're just trying to do that because we believe that God still heals. Holy Spirit, these moments right now make them especially sacred. Would you give people courage to step out and walk down the aisles and say, I could sure use some prayer today. And would you meet them here? And through the prayers of brothers and sisters, would you bring healing? Would you bring restoration? Would you give them a blessing? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.